really what, what some people need and maybe don't have before they start is really developing a conviction in the product or service that you're going to be selling. And I certainly had that with Bone Broth. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Shopify Masters, the weekly podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Felix Tia. The journey as an entrepreneur can really feel like a marathon, which is appropriate that my guest today is Connor Meekin, founder of Bluebird Provisions. He's also a marathon runner. In 2016, Connor had a devastating foot injury. His doctor said his foot may not fully heal and he might never be able to run long distance again. Taking his recovery into his own hands, Connor dove into the world of bone broth and was able to heal his foot and get back to ultra marathon running and winning races. Soon after, Connor launched Bluebird Provisions and quit his job to share bone broth with the world. Welcome to the show, Connor. Stoked to be here, Felix. Yeah, so you got into bone broth for yourself to help with an injury. Tell us more about your background and how you arrived at using bone broth. Sure. So I am a somewhat competitive ultra marathon runner, if you can believe it. The tricky thing about ultra marathons is that you have to run a lot to be able to uh, compete and excel at them. So the runners can probably see where this story is going. I um, had a lot of success, you know, 2015, 2016, 2014, uh, you know, running and winning a lot of races and had a, you know, my goal race on the calendar summer of 2015 and just trained a little too hard, was training through some injuries and, um, Ended up with a very strange injury to the bottom of my foot where I uh, ruptured my plantar fascia, which there's not a lot of precedent for in the in the Western medical community. So it's kind of doing what everybody does, seeing doctors, specialists, physios, and no one really had an answer or a way to to fix it. I even had some some doctors telling me after looking at the imaging that uh, you know, frankly, in in their opinion, it would never heal, and I was told I'd I'd never run again. And, you know, running being my passion, it just hit me so hard. I was, I was depressed. I was, you know, physically and, and mentally just broken and, and defeated. Felt like Western medicine kind of let me down and started looking at some, some, some more Eastern medicine approaches to, to healing the body. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with kind of diet and, and, and certain things. So Googling stuff, eating all these, you know, strange foods that supposedly had, you know, healing properties for tendons and, and, and joints and that kind of thing. And one of the things I came across for healing tendon injuries like mine was collagen or gelatin, or in my case, bone broth, because bone broth has the same amino acid profile or, you know, kind of protein structure as collagen. And there was a researcher doing some, some research using gelatin and collagen to heal tendon injuries. So I talked to this guy, he said, yeah, bone broth would be a, a good substitute. So I started researching and trying to make bone broth in my, uh, in my apartment. And, uh, much to the chagrin of my, my neighbors, I, uh, basically stunk up the whole apartment building for a few months there while I was, you know, continuously making bone broth and drinking it and giving it to friends and, kind of just got so passionate about it because after a few months, I started to feel better. I started to, my injury started to heal. And, you know, obviously that wasn't attributed only to bone broth. I was doing a lot of other things with bone broth, but um, just the timing of it made me so passionate about bone broth that I wanted to share it with anyone who would listen. So started doing a bit of research, Googling stuff, looking at some companies, uh, back in 2016, there were a few companies in the U.S. that were kind of popping up and seemed to be doing okay. Not really any in Canada. So I said, hey, you know, I could probably do better than what's out there and decided to, uh, you know, kind of start the sort of craft local business here in Vancouver, Canada, where, you know, I 
bought some equipment, rented a commercial kitchen, you know, did it myself and hired people off Craigslist. And next thing you know, we're, uh, we're being sold in grocery stores and now kind of all over the place. So yeah, it's been a, been a crazy journey. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and obviously the, there's more details in there. So I want to kind of dive into that. So when you were making the bone broth for your, your own purposes, uh, you mentioned how much of a, a difference it made for, for you and for your, your own healing. What made you kind of take that leap, though, to say that I want to start a business behind this? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So before this, I worked for a you know, pretty early stage software company here in Vancouver called Hootsuite that, um, yeah, became a somewhat big tech company, you know, kind of a decent Canadian success story for for tech. And I was a pretty early employee there and got to kind of, you know, learn from the, the CEO and some of the executives there. Uh, I was on the marketing team, so I got a pretty good glimpse at, you know, marketing and, and brand and a lot of, you know, copywriting and those types of things. And, and that really planted the bug that I wanted to start my own business. The food came in, you know, somewhat around that time as well. I was always interested in, in cooking for myself and eating and always trying to, I was always that annoying person that was trying to find like healthy spins on, on, you know, different recipes, uh, whether it's, you know, baking, cooking, kind of anything, I'd try to healthify certain recipes. So before the bone broth, I actually took a pretty well, I almost started a sock company with a friend. Um, that was that was difficult. I almost started a, a cricket farm, which you know would have been a fully vertically integrated cricket protein uh, product line. So I had a, a few little ideas cooking, um, and then the bone broth just seemed like that kind of perfect uh, mix of opportunity and timing in the marketplace, and also kind of a, a deep, you know, a developing passion and and really what what some people I would say need and maybe don't have before they started is really developing a conviction in the product or service that you're going to be selling. And I certainly had that with bone broth. Yeah. And do you have any ways that you strengthened it? Cause it sounds like I'm wondering like what's your kind of um, uh, beliefs about convictions is it something that you just kind of have for a given product or a given category or solution, or are there ways to build it up from scratch or to increase what you already have? Yeah, that's a tricky one as well, because, you know, there's like, like that whole trope of, you know, follow your passion. Um, you know, people get in trouble because, you know, unfortunately, some people aren't passionate about a lot of things or anything that maybe is is worthy of a business. So, you know, I, I guess that's why I say conviction. And I think, you know, a lot of things are are frankly interesting. So, so the more you get into certain things, I think you can really kind of nurture that belief and, and conviction and kind of develop it as you learn more. Um, I would say in my case, yeah, I, I was somewhat lucky in that it came pretty naturally because I am interested in, in the niche, you know, performance, nutrition, and health food. Um, it, it personally helped me. So it was kind of like an, a, a nice combination, but, but I definitely realized for some people it is more difficult, um, to kind of have that, you know, I, I think my, my wife's a good example, you know, she, she owns a hair salon and, um, she doesn't cut hair. She, she's, you know, the business side of it. And, um, you know, she, she has a certain passion and conviction for hair, but it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't light her up like, you know, bone broth does for me. So it's, <laughs> I realize that it's uh, difficult for some people. Do you find that these days, especially when you're making decisions about the direction to take your business next, whether you're making a decision because it's like, it's aligned with your, your passion or, or where a conviction has to be, be useful for a direction that you're taking your business or if it's strictly an opportunity. 
Yeah. So I, I have a, we're dealing with this right now. And I, I think it's a, a really good point because um, our, our, you know, unique selling proposition is that we are the highest quality bone broth. So, you know, in Canada, that's like certified organic with the best sourcing you can find in, in the U S that is, you know, non GMO, all, you know, pasture raised, you know, basically the highest quality bone broth compared to the competition. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we are working on the development for a new product uh, that we're launching into the U.S. and the Canadian market, and it's incredibly difficult to develop this product. Now I'm at a crossroads because my conviction and my passion um, bring certain values with it from a food system perspective and a sourcing perspective and a food quality perspective. If you compare that to the competition, I would say a lot of them are taking shortcuts in their sourcing and their you know manufacturing that has a product that is maybe more cost effective. But um, us being a more premium product, it limits the ingredients and the manufacturing practices we can use. So yeah, I mean, I'm struggling with that right now. It's like my passion is built on a certain ethical um, process for our products, and now that we have this new product that is going to be so good, but we can't quite do it the way that fits our brand ethos in terms of ethics and manufacturing and, and sourcing. So I'm trying to figure out if we can find a way to still do that, or do we go down this other road that doesn't really sacrifice our morals or ethics at all, but, but you know, maybe it uses uh, a certain process or ingredient that is certainly still better than the competition, but, but you know, not the highest, highest tier. So I want to talk a bit about the 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 observation that you made early on with the business where you said that you looked around, you found some U.S. companies, none of them were in Canada. Does that mean that they weren't also selling in Canada? Like what was the the kind of niche or opening that you saw? Yeah, so at the time I was mostly looking at um, online at U.S. companies, but in Canada there was no one really selling online and there was no one really in grocery stores, you know, like the Whole Foods of the world. Uh, there, there was one kind of kicking around that, you know, wasn't really a bone broth and we're doing a very good job. So specifically in Canada, I said, Hey, um, there's really no one doing this. So it's a growing category. There's some data out there now. Um, I'm going to mark, I'm going to get this product to market, you know, quickly, um, and hopefully get it on shelf at a, some of the good retailers and test things out for six months to a year and kind of see, see how things go. Okay, so when you first started um, wanting to turn this thing into product, what were the the first steps? You mentioned you 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 hired some some people off of Craigslist. Like, what were you piecing together before you had that first version of the product that you were um, ready to sell? The tricky thing about food products is there's not a whole lot of information online about, you know, how to bring something to market. And, you know, it varies state by state, country by country, you know, for example, insurance, workers comp, compliance issues, food safety certificates, those types of things. It's difficult to figure all that out, you know, incorporation, all that. So, you know, figuring all that out was a bit of a task, you know, nothing, some Googling can't figure out and talking to some people. And then, you know, once we figured that out, it was like, okay, shopping around, trying to find a commercial kitchen, looking at costs, trying to, you know, figure out margins on what this product might cost, what we might be able to sell it at in a grocery store, figuring out, you know, distributor margins if we were going to go that route. And luckily, I had some kind of early mentors who you know, set me straight from a margin perspective, because when you're in grocery stores, you know, the old trope is that like everyone along the way has kind of got their hand in your pocket making money. And, and mm. <laughs> the only one not making money is the brand on the shelf. So for us, once we kind of figured that out, it was a matter of, yeah, signing a lease at a kitchen, 
figuring out which equipment we used. It was, it was pretty funny in the early days. I actually ended up using um, equipment that, you know, home brewers used, like massive stainless steel, mm-hmm. you know, kettles and pots that like home, like beer makers were using. I found those work the best. So, you know, buying equipment and then it was, you know, just kind of testing uh, R&D, figuring out how we could do what I was doing in my kitchen at scale. And, and that took a little bit as well. It was uh, it was hard work, frankly. It's a lot a lot a lot easier when you're not doing your own production, I would say, which is you know where we're at now. Yeah. So your your kind of sales channels that you focused on or that were profitable for you kind of evolved over time. But when you first started out, were you selling to to retailers or who were your customers? Yeah. When we started out, luckily I got a got a press hit locally here in Vancouver from you know a friend that I had met from you know working for this software company. You know, he he covered us, which was amazing. We got some, some decent online sales, and you know, they were only in Vancouver, so we were able to you know deliver things without having to sort out the whole cold chain online situation. Because at that point, our products were only frozen. You know, and and as a result of them being frozen, that's when I kind of realized, hey, you know, maybe it's cold chain online is not really ready for prime time yet. So that that was the decision to go into retail, and yeah, in terms of getting those first retail accounts. We, we got lucky. I got, I got some intros from, you know, the, the relationships at the software company I was at before. Luckily, the CEO, Ryan, introduced me to the founder of, uh, I would say, you know, Western Canada's version of something like Thrive Market um, called Spud. And they, mm-hmm. you know, brought me in and were able to, you know, do, do quite well with them. And then, you know, randomly pretty early on, uh, I got an email from uh, the Whole Foods buyer for Pacific Northwest. And I actually thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of my friends messing with me. Um, this guy emailed me, you know, asking for samples and said some people had been asking about it in the store. And I, I really couldn't believe it. Now, if I go back to kind of reverse engineering that, mm. maybe here's, here's a tip for the listeners. I don't know if it would still work now, but I actually sent in a lot of my friends and family members to Whole Foods, you know, a couple of months before this email came in. And I just told them all, hey, can you do me a favor? Go talk to the manager and, you know, tell them they need bone broth on the shelf and request this one specifically. So did that. I don't know. I can't remember how many actually did it, but they were saying, Hey, you know, there's this cool brand bluebird provisions, making organic bone broth. You should bring it in. And, um, yeah, it actually worked back in the day. I don't know if it would work now. Wow. Surprised they weren't suspicious. Like why, why, why did you coming in and, and fitting a specific brand? But I guess that makes sense that, I mean, you could, I guess do this organically too, where if you had like an online channel first and then people were going to stores looking to buy and they can't, it can kind of kick things off that way too. So once you landed these retail accounts, did you ever change anything about the business? Because as you had mentioned at first, it was kind of, you know, you're bringing it via delivering locally at first. Now you're, now you're getting these retail accounts. Like there is a, it's a kind of a bigger stage now. Like what did you have to change about the business to, to support that, that sales channel? I got one little kind of funny story. I remember before we got a delivery van, I drove a, you know, a 2001 Toyota Corolla and I'll never forget pulling into a Whole Foods loading bay with that Toyota Corolla and I, I got so spooked. I was like, oh man, I can't show up at the loading bay with this Corolla. So I, I think I parked on the street. I had a big dolly and uh, I unloaded all these cases from like, I think it was like coolers that I borrowed from my dad. 
and, you know, packed them all up on site, you know, rocked up with my purchase order and, uh, and a dolly full of products. And I'll never forget the buyer saying, Hey, you know, we got a loading bay right here. You could, you know, bring the truck in. And, uh, I think I, I lied. I told them, I, I told them the truck, you know, broke down or something, or, you know, s- something happened and, and we couldn't reverse or something. Um, so there's all these like ridiculous stories like that along the way. But, um, as we grew, you know, we kind of had our own, you know, delivery fulfillment, van where I was, you know, hired a driver and made that work. And then eventually as, as you grow, you have to use a distributor for retail sales where, you know, you're going to sell into a distributor. They're going to mark the product up, you know, 25 to 30%, depending what category you're in. And then they're going to service each individual grocery store. So, um, that's, that gets tricky because you, you know, you, you all of a sudden have this margin that you think, you have, and maybe you're profitable. And then once you hit a certain scale, you have to use distributors because the stores kind of mandate that you use distributors and that gets tricky for your margin. And sometimes you have to raise your prices to be able to absorb that 28% margin. And then, and then you got to bring in like sales brokers who uh, represent your product to get them into even bigger stores because the grocery industry is quite antiquated and it's all about relationships and who you know. So, you know, cold call, calling, cold emailing works sometimes if you have a, you know, like a really good viral, unique product, but a lot of the times you need brokers and, you know, they take 5%. So yeah, you can kind of see where this is going, where uh, everyone's kind of got their hand out and, uh, you know, the profits start uh, drying up pretty quick. <laughs> the first cup of coffee, it was awful. Meet Rod Johnson, co-founder of Black & Bold, a premium specialty coffee and tea company powered by Shopify. The journey of Black & Bold started with us opening our online Shopify store while we were burning beans in my business partner's garage. Shopify allows us to stay true to our mission by having an easily customizable and responsive site that make it very easy for novices to try their hand in becoming entrepreneurs. Get a free 14-day trial at shopify.com slash podcast. So once you made this transition into direct-to-consumer and, and uh, online, what kind of new skill sets did you have to, to develop? Yeah, first of all, it fit my personality a lot better. And it actually naturally fit my skill set a lot better as well. So yeah, I mean, the quick story is during COVID, uh, our retail wholesale business just went flat. You know, it went down a lot kind of that spring and summer of COVID. And you know, didn't really recover until like a, a year later. So ha- had we not moved online, we, we certainly would have gone bankrupt. And, uh, you know, I feel for a lot of the, a lot of these small food companies, you know, and restaurants and, you know, frankly, obviously a lot of businesses went bankrupt. I mean, the good thing about online is, you know, I came from a, a marketing background, you know, working four years for a software company. So I almost felt like I could kind of use that part of my brain creatively that I, that previously had been, <laughs> there was no time for, cause I was stuck, you know, getting up at five in the morning, making bone broth. So, so that was great. And, and that's when I kind of was able to learn more about things like SEO and email marketing and, you know, uh, acquiring customers and all that kind of fun stuff. It was almost like a new, it, it was certainly like a new chat. It was almost like a re a relaunch of our business in a lot of senses. And, um, yeah, just made, made my days, I would say equally as stressful at times, but, but more enjoyable for sure. Do you remember when things started kind of turning around where you're like, wow, this is actually, this actually might work. Like we can, we can actually keep this business going online. Yeah. I, you know, throughout this time I, I joined, you know, a lot of these, you know, Facebook groups for Shopify business owners, you know, I'm probably in all, every single one of them out there. And a lot of these people were saying, you know, it was just great to, to, 
hear what was helping them get through COVID. A lot of people were saying, Hey, you know, in the March, April, you know, Hey, do, do a sale right now because it seems to be resonating with, with customers, you know, everyone's scared. They want to order things to their home. So things like that really helped us get through it, you know, doing a sale then. Um, but, but, you know, as a result, the timing was difficult because bone broth is more of a winter thing and we were coming into the summer, but we were able to get through it with, um, the limited kind of email list we had already been growing as a result of just our website being out there and, you know, a couple sales through the summer. I'll never forget. We had a, you know, like a Labor Day sale that, um, just did, did really well, frankly. And I, I wasn't expecting it to, to, to do so well. So things like that to bring in some cash through the summer. And then all through the while I knew that, you know, shipping frozen bone broth wasn't going to work or scale long-term. So while we were doing that, I was, really hard at work developing a shelf stable version of our product. And what that looked like was kind of me reverse engineering all of the, uh, I would say like, like the checklist of a D2C, you know, shipping friendly product. So for me, it was like, okay, it has to be less than a pound when we ship one unit, it has to fit these certain dimensions. Um, yeah, so for me, that ended up being a dehydrated product where we worked on dehydrating our existing liquid bone broth into a powder. So I was kind of hard at work at that and, you know, selling online with the frozen bone broth to, to get through it. And, you know, all the while it was like, okay, let's just get this new product launched. Cause that's going to allow us to launch in the U S the U S as well, which is a, a large market. So it was kind of just like keeping things going until we could get this new product launched. You you pivoted the product and you said during this time you were figuring out, okay, I have this store now. How do I actually get customers to the store? Because at this point you have zero like, customers, right? Meaning that everyone that was buying from you went to the store. You had like no email list or anything. Like what was the what was the starting point for you online? Luckily we had kind of stumbled into a few articles that I had written on our, you know, Shopify blog that uh, you know, when I looked at the track, you know, I, I'd written these kind of early on and, you know, early on in our, our days and, and looking at the traffic, you know, a year later, they, they, they had some pretty decent traffic. So I started, you know, learning about SEO and reading about kind of some of these, some of these people back in the day, like Neil Patel, who were talking about SEO and, 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 you know, niche websites and those types of things. So I started figuring out that, Hey, you got to write these long articles. They call them like skyscraper pieces of content that are just better than whatever's out there right now on the first page of Google. So started writing articles about bone broth, bone broth benefits, you know, stuff about collagen as well. And I figured out in a process that was able to get articles to rank on the first page. And, you know, some of them were in the first three. So, but before I knew it, we were acquiring customers, you know, a couple months after this, you know, for free. So it was, it was unbelievable. You know, the scale wasn't massive at this time, but, but because of the traffic, we were getting email addresses as well. So we were converting somewhere between, you know, two to 4% of visitors were giving us their email. At the same time, I was learning about, you know, email marketing and, and Klaviyo and, and kind of what's going on there. So I figured that out. I said, okay, SEO and email, let's figure that out for, for, you know, late 2020, 2020, early 2021 and doubling down on those two really helped us establish a nice foundation for our e-commerce sales and revenue and that kind of thing. And, and looking back, you know, we were able to generate 
I think around our average was around 40% of our revenue was attributed to email. So we we're just, just kind of like making the most of, of what we had and, and really kind of just like still, still scraping by. But, but I, I thought there were some leading indicators that would, um, tell me that, you know, things were moving in the right direction. So let's talk about those. I think um, these are certainly areas that are going to be super useful for a lot of listeners out there that do have limited budgets or that want to build a kind of a, a foundation of organic traffic. Um, so let's start with the, the SEO one. What did you learn about writing articles or you mentioned these skyscraper articles? Like, tell us more about what that means tactically when you're sitting down to, to create content that will drive organic traffic to your site. You know, the first thing, I would say to store owners is to make sure you kind of have the, I call it like the fundamentals, you know, make, make sure you got your, your website kind of in check. So make sure it loads somewhat fast. And then I would say you can invest in a, you know, a third party app to kind of make sure that your title tags and everything is optimized for your search terms. Uh, We use one called SEO manager that kind of just makes it incredibly easy to make sure you're getting that kind of low hanging fruit for ranking your homepage, product pages, collection pages, all that kind of fun stuff. Once you've got that out of the way, what I do is really kind of like the long form content and and what a lot of these SEO people call the, the content cluster. So the content cluster is essentially building a cluster of articles around one key piece of content or article. So you have your skyscraper article, which for anyone who hasn't heard this, like you basically want to have the highest skyscraper, you know, for your keywords. So you find the best article or the best few articles on the keyword. So in our, in our case, it was, Hey, bone broth or bone broth powder. Um, I'd look at what's out there. I would find the headings and the subheadings and then from there, you're, you're basically just answering questions that um, that you are receiving or that someone would want to learn about when reading an article about the benefits of bone broth. So once you fill that out, I would usually get to, you know, it doesn't have to be around 2000 words, but plus or minus, I would include some sort of infographic that I would make in Canva. I mean, these these are uh, not professionally designed, but uh, yeah, it kind of goes goes with my do do more with less philosophy. Um, would get a few more kind of images and graphs, ideally, and then um, you have this one piece of content, and then you want to write like I don't know five to ten shorter articles um, that are almost like supporting this one large piece of content, and and that's important because in these short articles, they are maybe peripherally related to your main keyword in the one piece of content, but but maybe they're answering slightly different questions or worded in a slightly different way. And these, in my experience, these are shorter, 500 to 800 words. But the key here is you are linking only in one direction. So you're linking from these shorter clustered articles to the long, like 2000 word skyscraper article. And, you know, from what I know, these links from one, you know, these, these cluster of articles all to this one article sends the signal to Google that, hey, this, you know, piece of content is prioritized in the website and that is going to hopefully favorably rank that article. This is like all on site, like all this content you're talking about is all like on your blog. Yeah, this is all just on the blog or, or dedicated pages on your website. And yeah, this is without any kind of like backlink outreach or anything. 
So once you kind of optimize this for, for, for SEO, are there, what's the kind of call to action? How do you get them? Or do you even have to think about how to get them to click over to see the products? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've tried, I've tried just about everything uh, for this. Uh, originally I used the, I, I would, uh, paste in the buy button, uh, that you can use the, the Shopify buy button. I found that actually didn't convert as well. And now what we ended up doing, so you kind of have a, you want like an organic call to action, hopefully in, you know, the first couple of paragraphs of the article, because, you know, everyone's scrollers. And then what we do is we also have, um, probably two different calls to action that are, that are images. So I would make a, an image in Canva that looks like a, a little advertisement. And it, it even has a little fake button uh, in the, all within the, the image that I made on Canva. And that'll be like, hey, you know, uh, try this delicious collagen rich bone broth. And then it'll say like, buy now or learn more with a button. Uh, but in reality, the whole image is just clickable. So I found those actually converted better than anything else. And then all the while, you're also embedding, hopefully, some email forms, maybe some email pop-ups to get, get the email list because a lot of these, um, a lot of the traffic you're going to get from SEO is, you know, pretty top of the funnel. They're not necessarily ready to buy. So hopefully, you can convert a certain percentage to your email list, nurture them with a good, you know, welcome campaign or offer, and hopefully, a certain percentage of those will eventually convert. Were there pieces of content that surprised you one way or the other where you were not thinking that it would do much, but then it, it for some reason, um, gets a lot of traffic or the other way around where you thought that this one would do really well, but just, you know, kind of petered out? Yeah, it's it's so hit and miss. I, I wrote an article early on that, that was just the difference between bone broth, stock and broth. And that was the one that gave me the signal that, hey, wow, we're getting a lot of traffic and some sales from this article. Now, I was able to repeat that a lot. I started writing about collagen, was able to get on the first page with an article about collagen that brought in most of our traffic for like a year. But then I started writing about a lot of kind of different stuff. I would say, you know, writing about general health food things, writing about uh, apple cider vinegar, writing about um, what else, writing about like impossible foods and beyond meat. Uh, I found those didn't bring in as much traffic and they certainly didn't convert because it kind of goes back to the idea of domain authority where, you know, Google or search engines probably saw us as an authority for bone broth and collagen. But since we hadn't been publishing a lot of articles about other topics around food and nutrition, like, yeah, impossible foods are beyond meat. Uh, we were certainly not an authority in their eyes. So those articles despite, in my opinion, I'm obviously biased being good in-depth articles. They really just kind of sat there and didn't bring in much traffic. So when you know the kind of content or the, the domain authority, the, the kind of area that, you, that works the best for driving traffic, how much content can you really create here? Like, do, you, do you find that it's like you have a limitless or a always growing list of ideas that uh, content ideas or like, uh, is there a certain point where like, okay, I'm not sure how much more we can write about bone broth. Yeah, that's the thing. We're kind of coming up to that right now. I feel like I've covered just about everything to do with bone broth because it's a relatively small niche. I would say a strategy for listeners that maybe is not talked about very often. And what we're kind of getting into is writing buyer's guides for your keywords or your niche. And we're finding that these, you know, they don't bring in a ton of traffic, but they're so targeted that they convert quite well. So for example, I'm writing buyer's guides for the bone broth industry. Um, and it, it's interesting because you're, you're, this will be like a list, you know, Hey, here's the best bone broths in the USA. And you're going to list 
hope you're ideally going to list your product first, but you're going to have your competitors or, you know, peripheral competitors below you on like a list of five or 10, you know, and, you know, some people might think it's risky, but, uh, you know, you're only going to link to your product. You're going to write a little bit about your competitors and you find that these, um, convert incredibly well if you, and, and they seem to rank quite well too. So I would say that's like kind of some low hanging fruit for listeners. The other interesting one, if you're a small brand getting started is writing like comparison articles. This is a lot of what, you know, software companies do. You're writing comparison articles between you and your competitors. And yeah, you might think this is another kind of weird tactic, but particularly if you're the smaller brand and your competitors are larger, if you use your competitors' keywords um, in the title and in the article, you can actually rank for their keywords and like, quote unquote, steal some of their traffic for people that are searching for their items because... A lot of people, when they're searching for something, if you think about it from like an intent perspective, they're looking for feedback about this product or reviews on this product. So if you write, uh, you know, X product review, that's going to entice readers to click through and read that. And we're finding that works quite well. Yeah, that makes that, that makes a lot of sense when 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 um I guess thinking about it where the the buyers guides and the competitor kind of articles are high purchase intent. People are coming in looking to buy something, not just like learning about bone broth. Like they're ready to make a purchase and they kind of want to kind of get some pieces of information squared away before they make a decision to buy. Now I want to talk about the other kind of um, source of, uh, I guess, free traffic, which is with with emails. So tell us more about, A, how are you able to collect the emails and then what are you sending them? Yeah, so we are, again, quite, quite aggressive with email capture. You know, everyone hates the pop-ups, but uh, there's a reason why all the marketers use them because because they work. So you know, if you come to our website, we're going to hit you with a pop-up with, with an offer. I've tested just about every off, offer out there. There's like the typical 10% off discount code that most brands use. Uh, we found what converts better is uh, we're going to enter you into a contest to win a one-month supply of bone broth for free. So that is what converts best for us. And, and that's going to be a pop-up. You know, uh, when you land on the page, there's going to be a similar pop-up when you go to exit the page. If you land on a blog article, you're going to get another pop-up that is similar once, you, once you're scrolling to a certain percentage. I think we do 60%. And we also have yeah, email forms embedded on throughout all the blog posts as well. And, and with this, we are able to get, I think it's between um, 25 to 5% of all traffic we're able to get their email address. I think I, I've heard of some companies doing a lot better, up to ten percent. But but I my hunch is that they are not getting mostly organic traffic because I think organic traffic tends to not convert as well for email or for sales because it's just a lot of people under the sun searching for for certain things. Now the other the other quick interesting thing I, I I'd say that you're seeing some brands do and that we're doing as well. We do have a, a bone broth quiz. The quiz it's it's pretty simple. We use Typeform for it. It's going to ask you to answer two questions about your background and your kind of goals with bone broth and your experience level with bone broth. And that's going to use some conditional logic to spit out uh, a personalized product recommendation. And yeah, people seem to love the quiz. They seem to love having a personalized recommendation. Um, And then from there, they're going to get um, a custom welcome series based on their quiz results. So yeah, it's pretty cool what you can do in the back end with Klaviyo. Um, and really just custom tailoring your welcome flow based on um, whether they came from uh, a pop-up or a quiz result. 
from there, yeah, we're obviously trying to get the initial purchase. So, you know, we're going to share a little bit about the brand, a little bit about, you know, my background, because I would say our stories, you know, resonates quite well with, with consumers who are looking for bone broth. So we put our story out there first, and then we're going to hit you with probably, I got to look, it's like around 15 to 20 emails with a cadence of, you know, every two to five days between emails and hopefully we get a purchase. Obviously you're not going to get everyone to purchase. So we're really hoping for a purchase or an unsubscribe because uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want uh, people sitting on the list that are never going to buy. So that's bluebirdprovisions.co is a website. And I'll leave you this last question. What do you think is the most important thing for you to personally focus on to get the company to, to that next level? Yeah, I think in the short term, it is product development, getting some new products out there because our existing dehydrated bone broth is doing amazingly well um, with consumers. So we just want to continue serving our community with the absolute best products out there. So product development and customer acquisition are you know the two, two best things we can do. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your advice, Connor. Thanks so much, Felix. I had a blast. And that's all the time we have this week. Come hang out with us next time on Shopify Masters. Again, I'm Felix Tia. Thank you and take care. Thank you.